We're continuing in Chayim Aran, in the section describing Ravenazal's birthplace and where he lived and his travels. And we're up to paragraph Kuftes Vav, 115 in Chayim Aran. In the English version, it's paragraph 12 in the book Tzadik. We dedicate the learning today once again, Lili Nishmas Tufio Berav Yisrael Yitzchak, Yurachmiel Daniel Ben Gedalia, and Rosa Bas Itamar. This paragraph begins Rabbeinazal's travel to the city of Breslov, which took place in the month of Elul of the year Tov Kuf Samach Beis, 1802. That's when Rabbeinazal arrived in the city of Breslov, and his first Shabbos there was Parshas Kiseitze. Rabbeinazal says, when the news that regarding Rabbeinazal, that he made a decision to move to Breslov, when it arrived in Rabbeinazal's city of Nemerov, which was about 12 miles away, it seemed very surprising that Rabbeinazal made a decision to come there. However, Rabbeinazal says this was Hashem's incredible Rachmanus, and, and this plan was for the ultimate benefit of Klal Yisrael to ensure that Rabbeinazal's teachings would be perpetuated in the world, because it was in the city of Breslov that Rabbeinazal's published writings were completed. The Likut Imran, Volume 1, was actually published prior to that, and then Volume 2 was not published, but the Shurim were completed. And in addition, the Sefer Hanisraf, a Sefer which Rabbeinazal had written, and then he instructed his students that it be burned. And the Sefer Hagonus, another Sefer, that Rabbeinazal had written and did not allow to be revealed. These forum were all completed in Breslov. And Rabbeinazal writes that his own connection to Rabbeinazal began immediately upon Rabbeinazal's arrival in the city of Breslov, and we'll go into that much more later. Rabbeinazal writes that Rabbeinazal had made a statement that if his only purpose in coming to the city of Breslov was to be Makarev Rabbeinazal, it was enough. Now, throughout the almost eight years that Rabbeinazal lived in Breslov, he had no issues, no problems with the people of the city of Breslov. However, outside of Breslov, the opposition was still strong, unfortunately, because of the Shpalazedi. The more Rabbeinazal was Makar of people, the stronger the opposition was. However, Rabbeinazal continued what he was doing every day, every hour, every moment. He would rise to higher and higher heights in closeness to Hashem, and the higher he went, the more he was able to reach out to more and more people. And Rabbeinazal says, were it not for the terrible mistakes that people made, Rahman al-Itzlan, regarding this machlekes, regarding this conflict, which made the world unfit, to be able to receive from Rabbeinazal's light and caused his light to be hidden, Rabbeinazal's greatness would have been revealed to everybody and he would have been able to bring the whole world to tshuva because his whole desire and his whole purpose in life was to help people improve and to take them from darkness into light. Rabbeinazal made a comment, so what if they drive me out of here also? Wherever I go, wherever I step, I'll rectify things. And now Rav Nosanzal adds one more point regarding Zlatopolia. On the way out of Zlatopolia, when the carriages had already arrived from Breslov to bring him there, Rav said that here in the city of Zlatopolia, I suffered a double Gehenim. Because the Gemara says 
that the maximum sentence for a Russia in Gehenna usually is 12 months. And Rabbein Zalai said, I suffered here for two years. He also said that until now, he was living alone, sort of, outside the camp, like a Metzoyra, like a, a leper chasvishon, who's forced to be outside the camp of the Jewish people. But now I'm making a new beginning. Here, Rab Nachman Chirin, who was the one who organized the Sefer Chaim Aran, the writings are actually Rab Nosenzal's writings, but Rab Nachman Chirin is the one who organized it and had it published. Rab Nachman Chirin adds that I heard that Rab Nosenzal said, we conquered the city of Breslov with clapping of the hands and dancing. And sure enough, shortly after Rabbeinazal entered the city of Breslov, he began talking about this at length, emphasizing the importance of clapping one's hands during davening, and how this is a way to push away the impure air of Chutzlaretz and to bring on the holy air of Eretz Yisrael. And Rabbeinazal points out that year Rabbeinazal danced a lot in order to nullify the Cantonese decrees that the Russian Tsar had wanted to impose, forcing Jewish children to be conscripted into the Russian army for 25 years. And during the winter of that year, Rabbi Nezal gave the lesson, Ve'ele HaMishpotim, chapter 10 in Likutimran, where he clarifies and explains this topic of clapping hands and dancing, how it brings about Hamtoka Sadinim, how it's able to sweeten harsh judgments from heaven. Rav Nosenzal says that he also heard that shortly after Rav arrived in Breslov, a cup of wine had been poured for him for Kiddush, and it spilled by accident. A second cup was poured, and then Rav said the Kiddush over the second cup. And afterwards he said that today we have established the name Breslover Hasidim, and this name will remain permanently my followers will always be known as being associated with the city of Breslov. And sure enough, that's what took place. It's interesting to note, Rabbi Moshe Kramer said once, that the word Breslov is Bigimatria 294, Beis Reish Samach Lamed Beis, and Rabbi Nezal's name, Nachman Ben Fega, is also Bigimatria exactly 294. We know that both Rabbi Nezal and Rabbi Nezal speak a lot about the importance of a name. Gemara says, Rabbi Meir Dayek Bishmo. Rabbi Meir observed carefully the name of a person or the name of a place, and it was able to reveal to him important information about the person or the place. Paragraph 116. In the year Tovkuf Samach Gimel, which is the year that Rav Nosenzal became a Kurov, 1803, Rav made a wedding for his daughter Sarah, who was married to Rav Yitzchok Isaac, the son of Rav Leib Dubravner. The wedding took place in the city of Medvedevka, where Rav had lived earlier, after his bar mitzvah, despite the fact that Rav was already living in the city of Breslov, and usually the custom was that the wedding is in the city of the bride. But obviously, for important reasons, here the wedding took place in Medvedevka on a Thursday night, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is actually Rabbi Nezal's birthday. After the wedding ceremony, they spoke about Moshiach, and Rabbi Nezal hinted to the fact that it was fitting that Moshiach would be 
one of their offspring, of this new couple. We know that Rabbi Nezal did make a clear statement that he had succeeded in tefillah in accomplishing the fact that Moshiach would be from his descendants. The following Shabbos at Shalashudas, Rabbi Nezal gave an incredible Shir, chapter 49 in Likut Imran, which is very, very famous, based on the Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 19. Lashemesh som oihel bohem, vehu kechoson yoitse michuposoi, where it describes Kaviochel, Hashem, the light of the sun, like a, a groom coming out, coming forth from the chuppah. And in that Shir, chapter 49, Rabbeinazal speaks about the month of Nisan, he speaks about Sarah Imenu, he speaks about Yitzchak Avinu, he speaks about a bride, a kala, and he also speaks about a wedding. And Rabbeinazal said that his focus in giving that shear wasn't so much for the people that were there listening to it, but rather he was focusing on trying to knock out that decree that the Russian Tsar wanted to impose of constricting Jewish children into the army. And in that chapter, Rabbeinazal also discusses defeating the non-Jewish nations. The Pasuk Ki Ese Kolo Bechol Agoyim. Hashem says, I'll put an end to all the nations. And the term Kolo, Chof Lamed Hei, means an end, a final destruction. And the word Kala means a bride, the same Hebrew word. Rabbi Nassau quoted the Pasuk that regarding the other nations, the fire of the Shekhinah is a destructive fire to wipe them out. And to us, to Klal Yisrael, the Pasuk says, mm-hmm. that when we attach ourselves to Hashem, mm-hmm. that fire becomes a, a holy fire, a fire that gives life. After Rabbi Nezal finished teaching that chapter on the Kutimran, chapter 49, Rabbi Nezal writes, he danced tremendously for a long period of time in honor of his daughter, the bride. And Rabbi Nezal says, anyone who hadn't witnessed watching Rabbi Nezal dance never saw something fantastic in their life. Because Rabbi Nezal says, although I was privileged to see a number of tzaddikim dancing before a bride, it didn't compare in any way whatsoever to the extraordinary dancing of Rabbeinazal. And anyone who was present at the time was inspired to do tshuva for all of their sins. And he writes, it's impossible to describe the incredible hisoyerus, this incredible excitement among those that were there during the dancing. And we know that in Likut Imran, there are several chapters in Likut Imran that elaborate on the spiritual importance of dancing and clapping hands, including including this sh- chapter 49. Rabbi Nelson Zal adds that normally Rabbi Nezal danced only at rare intervals, but during that period of time, 1802-1803, Rabbi Nezal danced several times on Simchas Torah, on Shabbos Hanukkah, on Purim, and when he was in Medvedevka for the wedding of his daughter. And Rabbi Nezal said, this year, I've danced a lot. And he said it was because of the fact that it was during that year they heard the news about these decrees that the government wanted to impose to conscript Jewish children. And Rabbi Nezal knew how devastating this would be. In the year Tovkuf Samachay, which is 1804 in the English year, Rabbi Nezal made a wedding for his daughter Miriam in the city of Volochisk. 
at the Forspiel, which is before the wedding, which was on Shabbos, they were reading Parshas Noyach. It was Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, after the holidays, after Rosh Hashanah and Kippur Sukkot. And Rav Zal writes that Rav Zal danced practically the entire Shabbos. They never saw him dancing that much. And Rav Zal says he also acted much more informally than he did usually. He davened together with us. Very often Rav Zal davened in a room off to the side where he could hear the davening of the minion. He joined the minion by listening to them, but he wasn't in the same room with them. But here he davened together with us. And he didn't put on his usual formal clothing. He wore a scarf tied around the waist of his coat. Afterwards, at Shalashudas, at the third meal, Rabbi Nezal again sat with us and told us that we should remember this Sudashlishis. And then he said that on Rosh Hashanah that year, he had been given an allowance of a thousand Adumim. Adumim means like a, an, an expensive coin, like a gold coin, over and above his basic needs. This is referring to spiritual wealth. And Rabbi Nezal said he went up to a certain place in heaven, and Rabbi Nezal said, you know that I love Torah. And in this place in heaven, a very, very high level of Torah was being revealed. Rabbi Nezal came there, and there was a guard at the entrance that wouldn't let him in. So he gave the guard these thousand gold coins as an admission charge. And Rabbi Nezal said that his Yetzirah was pretty strong in trying to have him be reluctant to give all of that wealth away. But he, he did, reluctantly. And Rabbi Nezal said, I understand that taiva, that, that Yetzirah, I understand that Yetzirah very well. And he said he entered in the place where they were revealing this Torah, and the shear that he gave at that time, chapter 22 in Likut Imran, the Torah Chaysam Betoy Chaysam, is based on a little bit of what he heard in that place. That's one of the longer chapters in Likut Imran, on which there's about 15 chapters of Likut Yalachas expounding on it. Rabbi Nezal also gave another shear during that time, based on the Pasuk, Vayoymer Hashem Solachti Kidvorecho. Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, in Eretz Yisrael, it's Parsha Shlach, which they're going to be reading this coming week. Vayoymer Hashem Solachti Kidvorecho, that when Moshe Rabbeinu was mispalel to Hashem to forgive the sin of the Meraglim, Hashem said, I forgive them based on your words, your tefillah. And Rabbeinu Zal said that the first letters of Vayoymer Hashem Solachti Kidvorecho make up the word Koisi, my cup. Rabbeinu Zal points out that he had just finished saying Kaddish for his mother, who had passed away a year before. And in that shir, chapter 177 in Likut Imran, Rabbi Nezal also included an explanation regarding the Kaddish, the words Yiskadal v'Yiskadash Shemei Rabo, based on the writings of the Arizal. And Rabbi Nezal says there was tremendous simcha at that Shalashuris. It was something incredible to see. That Shabbos, Rabbi Nezal had drunk a little bit of wine, as is customary in celebrating a, a wedding, and Rabbi Nezal was very happy and danced practically the entire day. At one point, he supported himself on his student rebutal and continued dancing. And at that point, they were singing a beautiful, inspiring melody, which is a melody of Yira. 
And Rabbeinu Zal danced to this melody. And Rabbeinu Zal points out, usually, Rabbeinu Zal danced, it wasn't to melodies that were very quick. It was these types of melodies which were slow and very deep. And, and in the footnotes, they point out that it's, it's known among the Breslavers that the melody that it's referring to here is what the custom is in many Breslav shuls to sing for Birkas HaChodesh. It's a very slow, beautiful, beautiful, inspiring melody. And Rabbeinu Zal said that this melody invites the Neshamais to come and gather and join for the wedding. And they were calling upon the souls of the great Sadikim of Rabbeinu Zal's family, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbeinu Zal's grandfather, Rabbi Nachman Horodenka, and Rabbeinu Zal's mother to come and join them for the wedding. Then Rabbeinu Zal davened Mincha together with us in the same place where he had eaten the morning meal. And again, he davened with a scarf around his waist, not the usual gartel, sort of more informal. Afterwards, Rabbeinu Zal sat with us for Shalashudas, for the third meal, and started singing the melody B'nai Hechola from the Arizal that we sing at the third meal. And there was tremendous simcha. And it was then that Rabbeinu Zal said that a person who knows how to drink wine properly can bring about forgiveness of sins through his drinking of the wine. And Rabbeinu Zal explains this over there in chapter 177. It's interesting to note that every holiday, Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, we bring in the holiday and we say the Shechianu over a cup of wine during Kiddush. The only holiday that we don't have the cup of wine and yet we're saying the Shechianu is the holiday of Yom Kippur when we're fasting. During the night, during, after Kol Nidre, we make a Shechianu, the Chazan recites Shechianu at the time and all the people in the shul say Shechianu quietly along with the Chazan and we try to finish a little bit before the Chazan so that we can answer Amen to his bracha. The question is, where's the cup of wine? And the answer is that right before the Shechianu, if you look in your machzer there, the machzer on the evening of Yom Kippur, right before the Shechianu is when we say these words, Vayoymer Hashem Solachti Kidvorecha, that Hashem said, I forgive them based on your words, based on your prayer. And Rabbeinu Zal revealed that the first letters of those four words, Vayoymer Hashem Salafti Kedvorecha, spell the word Koisi. That's the cup of wine. That's the cup of wine for Yom Kippur, that, that's over which we're making the Shechianu. This is something I heard from Reb Nachman Burshti in I believe he, it was told over in the name of Reb Nachman Chirin. Later that evening, Rav Nosanzal writes that Rav prided himself that he hadn't, in all of his difficulties and everything, he had not yet made use of schusavos, the merit of his forefathers. He didn't employ that in his prayer. And regarding what happened in Eretz Yisrael, we're going to learn about the story of Rav trip to Eretz Yisrael, and at one point when he was leaving to go back home, there was a, a war going on in the city at the time, and he climbed a wall to get out, thinking that in the opposite side of the wall there was land, and not realizing that on the opposite side of the wall was the Mediterranean Sea. And Rabbein had sort of 
gone over the side already, was hanging on by, by his fingers with nothing to jump down to other than the sea. And Rabbi Nassau mentioned that at that point he mentioned the merit of his forefathers. However, here Rabbi Nassau added that what happened in Eretz Yisrael was not, it wasn't him using the merit of their mitzvahs, but rather on the contrary, it was for their benefit that he mentioned his forefathers at that time. These are obviously deep, deep statements, deep thoughts that we don't necessarily understand. Any questions, please? Is there a clear reason why wine is, is so fundamental? Since you brought this up, in your merit, and because I'm coming off a Shabbos bar mitzvah, which was also a happy occasion, I'll mention some very powerful, interesting things regarding wine, and you mentioned the term kois. The Sifrei Kabbalah speak a lot about wine, and our Sforim, the Likut Imran, and especially the Likut Elochas, there's many pages of incredible, incredible explanations and revelations regarding the topic of wine. Let's take a look at the word yayin. Yayin, which means wine in Hebrew. The word yayin has a numerical value of 70. Yud yud nun. The Gemara says, Nichnas yayin soid. That when a person drinks wine, wine loosens a person's tongue, and it can also loosen a person's brain, both in a positive way and a negative way. Loosening the person's brain can go one of two ways. It can lead to an expanded consciousness where the person is able to think bigger, deeper, as a result of drinking wine, to think into deeper secrets of Torah, deeper levels of Torah, of spirituality, or a person who's drinking wine improperly, it loosens their mind, to go to places to thoughts that a person shouldn't be thinking, isn't allowed to be thinking, sinful type of thoughts. The connection between wine and the thought process, the Arizal reveals that in Hashem's name, this is a little bit deep. We're going to try to explain it very, very clearly. This is something very, very holy. Hashem's name, Yud Kevavke, that's the basic name of Hashem, the most basic name of Hashem. And we've mentioned many times that it can be formatted in four different ways. When you write out each letter as a word, the letter Yud, the way we pronounce it, is as if it were written Yud Vav Dalid. The letter Hey, however, can be spelled three different ways. Hey Aleph, Hey Hey, and Hey Yud. The letter Vav also can be written different ways. It can be written just Vav Vav, with the comets under the first Vav, or Vav Aleph Vav, or Vav Yud Vav. And that final Hey, once again, can be written the same as that first Hey. Hey Aleph, or Hey Hey, or Hey Yud. The Zohar Kodesh speaks about this and tells us why why these different spellings, what each one represents, each one represents different aspects, different midos of Hashem, but there are these four basic formats, <clears throat> and they refer the numerical value, when we add them up, when it's written, for example, let's take the highest one, Yud Vav Dalid, Hey Yud, Vav Yud Vav, Hey Yud, if you'll add up those letters, 
it adds up to 72. If we make one change, instead of Vav Yud Vav, we make it Vav Aleph Vav, so we're subtracting 9. 72 minus 9 becomes 63. And that's the second formatting of Hashem's name, Yud Kevavke. The first one is called Av, Ayin Beis. The second one is Sug, 63. The reveals that in these two combinations, there are seven Yuds. Follow me. Yud Vav Dalit is one Yud. Hey Yud is a second Yud. Vav Yud Vav is a third Yud. Hey Yud is a fourth Yud. That's the first one. And the second one, we only changed, we took out one Yud. We replaced the Yud with an Aleph. So instead of Vav Yud Vav, it was Vav Aleph Vav. So the first one has four Yuds. The second one has three Yuds. A total of seven Yuds. Seven times Yud is 70. We know that the letter Yud in the Hebrew language represents Chachma. This is mentioned many times. Number one, in Hashem's name, Yud Kevavke, the Yud represents Chachma. And Rashi in Chumash actually points this out when the Jews left Egypt. By the Shira Sayam, <coughs> it says there, Oz Yoshir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael. So Rashi points out, quoting the Medrash, it should have said, in, in Hebrew conjugation, it should have said, Oz Shor Moshe. Then Moshe Rabbeinu sang. Yoshir means, then he will sing. Referring to the future, referring to a thought, Rashi says, Al Shem HaMachshava Nemra. The word Yoshir, that Yud, implies Machshava, thought, thought, a thought to the future. So we know that the letter Yud represents Chachma, the letter Yud represents Machshava, and the Sifrei Kabbalah tell us that wine draws its power from those seven Yuds of those first two formats of Yud Kevavke, which correspond to the brain. Because we know in Hashem's name Yud Kevavke, the first letter of the Yud represents Chachma, the He represents Bina, <coughs> the Vav represents the six Midois from Chesed through Yesoid, and the last He represents Malchus. So that the letters Yud and He represent the brain, the mind, Chachma and Bina. And in those two letters, Yud and He, which correspond to Av and Sog, there are seven Yuds. That's where wine draws its power, its connection to the brain. And we know that we're told that when it comes to Kapora, atonement for sins, what causes a person to do sins is a spirit of insanity. The Gemara says, A person commits a sin when they become temporarily insane, to do something silly, foolish. They're not thinking. They're not thinking that if I do this sin, there are going to be very heavy consequences for it. So wine, again, which represents machshava, which represents chachman bina seichel, when it's drunk properly, it elevates a person in a very high way. When a person chas v'shom drinks it the wrong way, it has the opposite effect. The word kois, kois in Hebrew means a cup, and the word kois is used especially related to wine. The word kois, chaf samach, is the numerical value of Hashem's name, Elohim. 
which is the name of Hashem that's associated with judgment, harshness. Wine is red, and redness usually represents the left side, judgment, harshness. White usually represents kindness, forgiveness in a sense. So when we're connecting to wine, we're connecting to this Elohim, and when we're drinking wine on Shabbos, on Yontif, at a holy simcha, drinking it properly, we're sweetening, we're turning that Elohim around. We're sweetening the din. Now note, we said kois is bigematria 86, which is, Elohim, which is Elohim. Now let's take a look at the word Elohim. Let's take a look at the vowels under Elohim. If you look in your Siddur or your Chumash, you'll note that under the Aleph, there's a chataf segel. There's not just a segel, it's not just the A sound, the E sound. It's E and E. It's there's five dots under the Aleph. It's called chataf segel. There's five dots under the Aleph. The Lo has a dot on top of it, and the, the He has a dot under it. A total of seven dots in the word Elohim. Each dot is a Yud. So that in Hashem's name Elohim, in Hashem's name Elohim, the dots, the vowels, add up to Yayin. Are seven dots which add up to the word Yayin. The word Elohim itself, we said, is 86, which is the gematria of the word Kois. So Hashem's name Elohim the letters are bigematria kois, the vowels are bigematria yain, those seven dots are bigematria yain, showing that this is where wine is connected to, wine is connected to this aspect of din, and when drinking it bigedusha, it has the ability to turn it around completely. Now let's take a look at the word yain. The word yain, the letters are 70, we said, yud yud nun, the vowels in the word yayin, there's a patach under the yud, and there's a, under the first yud, and there's a chirik under the second yud. The Tikkun Zohar teaches us a patach is like a vav. It's shaped like a vav. A, da, a yud is like a, a dat. So that the word yayin, the letters are 70, the vowels are a yud and a vav, a 10 and a 6, 70 plus 10 plus 6 equals 86. So the word yayin, when we take the letters and the vowels, it's 86. Hashem's name Elohim, the letters are 86, and the vowels are 70. The vowels are yayin. For those that were able to follow this, I, I, you, you see that there's, there's depth, there's incredible deep things here. For those that weren't, it's recorded, the shir is recorded. With Hashem's help, if you want, you'll be able to listen to it over again. But this gives us an idea that wine is not a regular thing. Remember, we, we learned in the Likutei Aloha Shurim that one of the opinions is that the Eitz Hadas was grapes. The Medrash says, Sochato Anovim, that Chava squeezed grapes and gave it to Odomarishim. So the story of wine begins at the time of the story of creation. And we're told that when Moshiach comes, 
the Gemara says the celebration, the meal that will celebrate the coming of Mashiach, that Hashem will serve wine from the time of creation, Yain HaMeshumar, the wine that was reserved from the time of creation for this incredible holy celebration. Any questions, so, please? So, so Yain and Kos are directly related by these combinations of letters and, and dots to the word Elohim. That is truly amazing. And, and Kos is also important. In other words, it's not a bottle. It's a cup. Exactly. That might, might be related to moderation. Thank you very much. I've been wondering about this for many years. Thank it's, you very much. It's definitely true. It's definitely right. And this is why a Kiddush cup is one of the holy, holy things in Judaism. Because the cup that's used for Kiddush, Friday night, or Yontif, or in a shul, is something that's revered. It's something that's very special. People try to have a silver, a silver cup for Kiddush, pure silver, <clears throat> if possible. It doesn't have to be. That definitely doesn't have to be. And there's a special amount that the Kiddush cup should hold in order to be sure that it's enough to be Yoytzeh, the mitzvah of Kiddush. There are different opinions among the rabbis in terms of a revius. For Kiddush, we know you need a revius of wine. There are different opinions among the rabbis. Five ounces is definitely more than enough, definitely covers all the different opinions. But it could be even less than that. Some opinions say 3.3 fluid ounces, different measurements. Privilege, one of the few remnants that we have from Rabbeinazal is the Kiddush cup that he used. We still have it. My Rebbe Rav Rosenfeld, it was one of the members of his extended family that has that Kiddush cup, and he was once privileged to be in that person's house, and he took a picture of himself holding that cup. In recent years, they've made replicas of Rabbeinazal's Kiddush cup, and many people enjoy having that. My, my Rebbe, Reb Michal Dorfmizor, used to love to give that as a gift for a bar mitzvah boy or for a couple getting married, the replica of the Kiddush cup that Rabbi Nezal used. Thank you. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Thank sure. You. A point being mentioned in the, in the chat that Rabbi Nezal said not to be drawn to music that brings a person to sadness, which normally we would assume that to be slow emotional music, seeming to prefer a happy music. The answer is, it's true. However, it's brought, in other words, these melodies that, 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 that religious people sing sometimes, these slow melodies have tremendous, tremendous... We're not talking about... There's this term blues, which is depressing music that comes from the Sitra Achra. But in Jewish music... There's happy music and there's slow songs, certain slow songs. Those slow songs usually, if they're coming from a religious place, have tremendous depth and holiness to them. The custom in many Hasidic shuls is that on Friday night, when they're singing L'chadoidi, during the first section of L'chadoidi, up until Loisevoishi or up until Vayilam Shisa, they usually sing these slow, deep melodies. When it comes to Loisevoishu of Hailem Shisa, they switch to a quick, super happy melody. And both of them have tremendous significance. But again, when it's coming from a place of holiness, these slow melodies do not bring a person to depression. They bring a person to a, a deep feeling of connection to Hashem. They can bring a person to Lev Nishbar, 
to a broken heart, which is filled with yearning to Hashem, which is filled with optimism, no negative feelings. Anyone else, please? Good morning. Does the Rav have any suggestions for nigun when learning the Gemara? There is a, a popular type of nigun that the yeshivas, people that learn in, in yeshivas, uh, a nigun that's used for a question in the Gemara and an answer in the Gemara, that's something that gives people inspiration and, and life in their learning. But anything that'll keep a person awake and happy and involved is, is good. I'm not asking the Rav to sing, but maybe you could reference me to where I could find them. If you go into one of the kolels or one of the yeshivas, one of the live ones, one of the live ones, you'll be able to hear it. You'll be able to hear it. If not, I'll give you a private, a private audition when I get back to Eretz Yisrael, Mitzvah One last point. We mentioned this in the previous year, that at a certain point, this was while Rabbi Nezal was still living in Zlatopolia, before he came to Breslov, he traveled to the city of Berdichev. And we mentioned that the Shpala Zeta had wanted to organize a cheren, an excommunication against Rabbi Nezal. And instead, the rabbis had gotten together there <coughs> because one of the leading rabbis was making a wedding for his son, the Volochisk Rebbe. Reb Leibish of Volochisk was making a wedding for his son, Reb Yosef Yoska, and many of the leading rabbis had gotten together, and they had wanted to organize a cheren on the Shpolazet at the time. It ended up being pushed off because someone convinced Reb Levi Yitzchak that you don't want this to happen in your city. You don't want this to be taking place in your city, even if it's the right thing. So just one final point on this. Before Rabbeinazal went to Berdichev on that trip, he gathered together a minion, and in, in their presence, he had a, a debate, he had an argument, he argued against the Sahara in a sense. Rabbeinazal says, I, I wasn't there at the time, I'm not exactly clear on what took place, but it seems that Rabbeinazal had said that from that time on, anything he wanted to accomplish, the Sahara gave himself like a free reign to, to turn the world over to mess it up. And this is why it's very difficult for people to, to carry out the advice that Rabbeinazal gives whether it's reciting Tikkun Akloli, whether it's having his spoiledus. But yet, Rabbein said that Hashem helped him, and anyone who was success, who succeeded in becoming a follower of Rabbein sees this, sees the obstacles, they see the difficulties, but at the same time, they see the incredible benefit. And Rabbein mentioned that he was always fighting the battle for Hashem, the battle for Hashem's honor, and he said, because I am the Zokain of Kedusha, an elder of holiness. And now, one final piece to that story, which will close the story, regarding the Shpala Reb Nachman Shirin points out that he heard that they were once brought together. Somebody somehow had arranged a meeting between them to see if they could establish peace. And the Shpala turned to Rabbi Nezal and said, how is it possible for an old man like me with no teeth would want machloikis? And he grabbed Rabbeinazal's hand and he put Rabbeinazal's finger in his mouth. He said, look, I don't have any teeth. And the Shpola said at that point, but I want to ask you, I want to ask you about some of the things I heard you said. I want, I want you to tell me if it's true. He said, 
isn't it true that you claim that there's another Zlatopolia in heaven? That just like there's a city of Zlatopolia down here, there's a Zlatopolia in heaven? So Rabbein said, definitely yes. <coughs> the Gemara says, on the Pesach again, by coincidence, this is next week's Parsha, Parsha Shlach, where it says, great cities and fortresses, ore orim gedoilim ubetsurois bashomayim. And, and the Gemara says in Tainus, page 5, that just like there are cities down here on earth, there are cities also in Shomayim. So then the Shpola sa- said, Didn't, is it true also that you said that when you were in Zlatopolio, you were involved in correcting the sin of Yerovam Benavot? Rabbeinazal said, yes, definitely yes. And he told him the chapter on the Kutuman that Rabbeinazal speaks about this, that the Ela Masse Bene Yisrael, we mentioned this in a previous year, the Parsha which speaks about the travels of the Jewish people, Ela Masse Bene Yisrael, is the tikkun for Ela Elokecha Yisrael, for the idol worship of the golden calf. So Rabbein Azal explained this to him. And then he said, finally, is it true that you claim to have been <coughs> in the Heichal of Moshiach in heaven? So Rabbein Azal said, so what? Were you there and you saw that I wasn't there? And since you're asking about this, Rabbein Azal said, if you come to my house and join me for a hot drink, coffee or tea, and you announce publicly that you retract the things that you said about me and that you regret the machlekes that it caused, I'll explain this to you. I'll explain this, this the Hechel of Moshiach and the deeper meaning to it. So the Shpala Zayda said, first I have to go home and then I'll, I'll come later. And as he was leaving, Rabbi Nezal heard him say to himself, how would it look in the eyes of my, my wealthy supporters if I were to make peace with him at this point? And Rabbi Nezal concluded by saying, had he listened to me and come to my house at that time, there might have been peace between us. But now... He's not going to make peace with me at all, but rather he's going to continue. And Rabbein Azal said, be it as it may, I'm not afraid, because he showed me that he has no teeth. And in one of the stories that Rabbein Azal told later on in his life, the story of the Zavuv and the Achabish, the spider and the fly, Rabbein Azal speaks about this concept of people trying to conquer a certain mountain, and, and their teeth fall out when they try unsuccessfully to be able to go up on that mountain. One final short statement about this. In the last Rosh Hashanah, before Rabbein Azal passed away, when he was giving the Shir Tiku Toichocha, chapter 8, in the second half of Likut Imran, Rabbein Azal had been suffering from tuberculosis for three years, and he had coughed up a lot of blood. And afterwards, Rabbein Azal made a comment, I have such an enemy, his anger against me can only be cooled when he sees my blood. And Rabbein Azal is, but he did not say who the enemy was. He just made this statement. Any questions before we close? Any idea who the enemy is? If Rabbein Azal leaves it like that, then I, I don't want to say anything. Sure.
Anyone else? Wishing everyone a wonderful week. We've, we've concluded that part of the story. Next week, we'll go on to other beautiful, beautiful insights to Rabbi Nezal's life. Thank you, Rabbi Manon. Sure. Wishing everybody a week of Simcha and Hatzlacha. I hope to be leaving the United States this evening for Eretz Yisrael in order to participate in a wedding of a grandson that's taking place on Tuesday night in Yitzhashem in Yerushalayim. Sim- Thank you. Simchas by all of us, Mitzhashem.